Good evening, everybody. Please turn to 1 Peter chapter 1. We'll be in 1 Peter for the next three weeks. It's a series called Outsiders. The first three centuries of the church struggled in a Roman empire that was suspicious and demeaning of Christianity. It saw Christians as atheists, denying the power of their gods. It saw Christians as antisocial, critical of the conventional culture. To Rome, the gospel threatened their way of life. Today, America increasingly places Christianity in a similar context. Christians are outsiders, living in the world, but not of it. Peter writes his first letter to such outsiders. If our, faith is to, if our faith is to survive this generation, we must adopt Peter's message and adapt to living on the outside. Father, the grass withers and the flower falls, but your word remains forever. So grant us ears to hear and hearts to receive what your spirit says to your church. Amen. Let's read now Peter 1 verse 1. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who are elect exiles, or some translations, foreigners, or uh, uh, temporary residents, of the dispersion in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, According to the foreknowledge of God the Father, in the sanctification of the Spirit, for obedience to Jesus Christ, and for sprinkling with his blood, may grace and peace be multiplied to you. Verse 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope. Through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. To an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you. Who by God's power are being guarded through faith for, for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. In this, this great living hope that we've been born again to, in that you rejoice Though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Though you have not seen him, you love him. And though you do not now see him, you believe in him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory, obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. Concerning this salvation, the prophets who prophesied about the grace that was to be yours searched and inquired carefully, inquiring what person or time the spirit of Christ in them was indicating when he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the subsequent glories. It was revealed to them, the prophets, that they were serving not themselves, but you in the things 
that have now been announced to you through those who preach the good news to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven. Things into which angels long to look. So we live in an era that some historians are calling Christendom. Christendom is this concept that began with the emperor of Rome named Constantine when in 312 AD, so a little less than 300 years after Jesus rose from the dead, Constantine was converted to Christ and he began to reverse some of the Roman laws to make Christianity favorable to Christians. And from that date in 312 all the way up to now, many church historians look at that moment as having even to this day direct influence on the way the church sees itself and practices its faith in the world today. In other words, before the conversion of Constantine, Christianity looked very different. Not to say that it went a wrong course, but simply to say that the concept of what the church was on earth had a different perspective than it did before Constantine. So let me explain. So the early, early Christians... I mean, right from the beginning in Jerusalem, on the day of Pentecost, when the Holy Spirit comes and fills those original followers of Jesus, they become the church and they begin to preach in Jerusalem. And many people get converted and they believe in Jesus. And thus, initially, Christianity was 100% Jewish. And for many years, Christianity was actually seen as a Jewish sect as a little, if you will, denomination within Judaism. Christians saw themselves as Jews who were simply different than other Jews because they accepted that the Messiah had already come in Jesus rather than their counterparts who were looking for uh, the Messiah in the future. So even the early Christians were Jewish. And it even says in Acts that they went to the temple at the hour of prayer to pray like Jews normally would. Difference? They saw Jesus very differently than the rest of the Jews. On the other side, the Jews who did not believe in Jesus saw Christians as a heretical sect within their own movement. They saw them as Jews too, just Jews that got the doctrine a little off. That's why you had people like Saul rise up to persecute the church because they were zealous for purifying Judaism in order that the Messiah could come back. And so he was, he was just determined to get rid of this heretical sect within Judaism, purify it. Well, gradually, uh, Christianity broke from Judaism for two reasons. First, more and more Gentiles were being saved while the Jews were slowing in that department. So the church was once all Jewish, then became some Gentile, then became mostly Gentile, then was a lot of Gentile and some Jewish. So the church began to see themselves as non-Jewish just by the population of the church members. But second, and probably most, uh, most determining in the separation is around AD 70 and the years leading up to AD 70, even before AD 66, which is actually the time of Peter's writing, um, the Jews were getting very uh, nationalistic. They were very tired of Rome ruling them. And so they were doing everything they can to purify their religion and get rid of foreigners. And they were getting very hostile toward the Roman authorities. Well, many in the church got very concerned with what they're seeing. So especially Gentile Christians decided we don't want to be associated with this when Rome retaliates. 
Because the Jews are being foolish right now, thinking they can do something about the Roman Empire. So that's when the church began to vocally say, we are not Jewish. We have nothing to do with this revolt that's about to start. We are our own people. Now, you can see why they did that. And of course, naturally that was happening because more and more the church was Gentile, non-Jewish. But the only problem with this happening was, and of course the church couldn't foresee this because a new kind of emperor took the throne named Nero. And the church's separation from Judaism became quite a problem for them when Nero took the throne. You see, Jews were exempt from emperor worship. Rome allowed the Jews to have their religious freedoms. But Christianity, if you're no longer part of Judaism, then that means you're a new religion. And Rome didn't like new religions So when Nero was to be worshipped as a god, well, the Jews, we don't care if they worship me or not. We've already had a pact with the Jews. But the Christians, what is up with this? Why are they, this, it's seen as rebellion against the emperor to not burn incense to him or bow down to him. So the Christians became rebels and the distinction became very horrifying. So this all begins uh, AD 64. Nero's on the throne. He begins reasonably. Nero is actually a pretty good emperor at first, but then things started to get to his head. He was seeking popularity. And in June 18th of AD 64, so the summer of AD 64, a fire burned out on a hot day in Rome. And the fire lasted for six days and seven nights. And after it was finally getting controlled here, another one sporadically rose up there. That one was settled down and three times sporadically burned up somewhere else. Very suspicious activity. And it burned 10 of the 14 sections of the city. Uh, meanwhile, everybody is homeless and they're just, you know, they're confused about what's happened to our city. They want to blame somebody. They begin to blame Nero, who is increasingly becoming unpopular because his power has gone to his head. And Nero sees the blame coming upon him, even though history can't confirm that Nero started the fires. Actually, he was out of the city while he started. Um, History can't confirm or deny that Nero started the fires, but the populace blamed Nero. You started the fires. And it got so bad that people even claimed to see him playing his fiddle and singing about the destruction of Troy while Rome was burning. Um, <laughs> you know how rumors can go. And so Nero was feeling the heat. He's, only, he's not only losing control of his, uh, of his Senate, but he's also... Um, he's losing popularity. Now the rumors are out about him and he doesn't want a conspiracy or an assassination. So he has to quickly find a scapegoat and he looks, well, the Christians look like a good scapegoat. And so they are accused of starting the fire. Now the Christians are an easy target because they are the outsiders of the Roman society. And we all know how it is. We look at the news. Outsiders are easy to blame for everything. Because they're not us. We don't have to take the blame. We can give it to somebody else. And as we read in the bulletin, Christianity were, it was an outsider movement because they were considered atheists and antisocial. A threat to the ways of the Roman life. Think about it. Everything the Romans did between their plays, the gladiatorial events, even to the little working clubs, uh, all of the uh, trade guilds that they had, um, all of the people that worked in a certain industry actually collaborated and worked together. And they would have feasts and that were sacrificed to a god. They were very, everything they did was connected with one of the Roman deities. 
And so as Christians, they could not see themselves as in all purity engaging in Roman life if it, as long as it was connected to the worship of pagan gods and goddesses. So Christians were often disassociating from many of these events. And so they were seen as antisocial. Then you get very suspicious of antisocial people. Why aren't they like us? Why do they reject our way of life? Their message is threatening us. And so you get suspicious. Then they start to slander. They start to demean. The Christians were a very easy target. And Nero had a very easy scapegoat. So the persecutions began. Uh, Nero did some horrific things to Christians. He dressed them up in animal skins and let dogs think that they were real food. He burned them in his gardens to entertain his guests. And uh, one historian wrote about the uh, gross things that he did and said that even Romans were beginning to feel sorry for Christians because Nero was going that far. Now, before you think that Nero had a worldwide persecution, that's not the case. Most of the Roman Empire simply mocked Christianity and disliked them. But there was no persecution of a suffering kind of sort. No death. Only in Rome was the, martyr, was the killing and the martyrs happening. So it was just in Rome that Nero went crazy and he got to possibly thousands of Christians. But what he started in Rome would eventually ripple to the rest of the empire. And for the next two and a half centuries, um, you would see waves of persecution increasing. So that some historians actually say that more Christians died in the persecutions than have in war. All the wars put together. I think that's a pretty amazing statement. I don't know how verifiable that is, but I have read that. Um, so each persecution wave gets more intense and eventually does become empire-wide. But Peter, right now, is writing uh, during the beginning of Nero's persecutions. Now, um, just to show you how easy of a target the Christians were... Oops, not that one. Um, I want to read to you guys a, a line from... Tacitus, he was a Roman historian right after this time period. And this is what he says about the things that were going on. So he writes, in spite of every human effort of the emperor's that's generosity and of the sacrifices made to the gods, nothing sufficed to allay suspicion nor to destroy the opinion that the fire had been ordered by Nero. Therefore, in order to destroy this rumor, Nero blamed Christians who are hated for their abominations. Whoa, <laughs> that's a Roman here saying this. They are hated for their abominations. Could you specify what that means? <laughs> and punish them with refined cruelty. Stop for a moment. This evil superstition, that's what he calls Christianity, reappeared not only in Judea, where was the root of the evil, but also in Rome were all things sordid and abominable from every corner of the world come together. So, thus, first those who confessed that they were Christians were arrested, and on the basis of their testimony, a great number were condemned, although not so much for the fire in Rome... As for their hatred of humankind. Whoa. That's how the Romans saw the Christians. Hatred of humankind. Not that the Christianity was failing to love their neighbor. Oh, I'm sure they were. 
But because of the Roman fear of these outsiders undermining our way of life and doing things against our way, they must hate humankind. Now, it might sound dramatic, but I have to look within myself and realize as a culture, we do this. We do this right now. And so maybe to understand the Romans a little bit, let's think this through. I want you to imagine Muslims. And it growing, Islam growing within the United States. And not only are more people believing in Islam, which would concern you, but you begin to see these Muslims as beginning to radically change their converts to live a very different culture than the American way of life. And they become outspoken about some of the things in America. Your materialism is horrendous and your movies are awful. Well, you might agree with them there. But, um, you know, and all down the list, like women shouldn't be allowed to do anything. They stay in the house and shouldn't be seen. Put burqas on all of them. And, you know, their way of life begins to be spread because of their message. You and I are going to be extremely irritated. In fact, we are irritated just by the little things we've seen around the world. They're not little, but they haven't infiltrated to the point Christianity was infiltrating Rome. You see what I'm saying? We even have presidential candidates who make very strong and and bold statements about what he would do or she uh, about about foreign religions coming to America. So if you can understand just for a minute, put yourself in that situation like we are the Romans and Muslims are Christians. Yeah, you can kind of get how they feel, huh? And how you don't like this. And so that's what the Christians are facing. But then Constantine, 312 AD, he gets converted. He's the emperor of Rome. And one of the first things he does is he ends the persecution of Christians. And then says, oh, by the way, I'm a Christian. So then Christianity wasn't just this hated outsider thing. Suddenly the emperor himself opens the door and says, Christianity is now a central part of the empire. Come on in. You guys are the blessed favored ones from being persecuted to being loved and adored. And then Christianity became for the followers, not just a costly thing, but a cool thing. Are you following the emperor? I'm following the emperor. So Christianity changed radically when almost overnight, its position from being an outsider people became an insider people. Now things change dramatically. When you feel like you've got the power, you're on the inside. Everybody else is an outsider. Things got a little uglier. There were instances where Christians were persecuting pagans. Didn't think of using the word that way, did you? But Christians were doing very violent deeds to some... It wasn't everywhere, but in some places, pagans were being hurt by Christians because they felt empowered. The the, uh, emperor is behind us. Um, You see the churches beginning to not be able to hold the numbers anymore. Early in the days of Christianity, conversion was a slow process. You brought somebody under your wing, you assigned them a disciple, and they went with you for a couple years. They tested you in different ways. And then after a couple years of being proved that your faith is genuine, then you were baptized on Easter Sunday. A whole mass of them that made it through their discipleship. But then with all these people flocking to the churches, there was high demand for many things, for more priests, for more uh, church buildings, and for more baptisms. And suddenly you have more people than you have leadership and discipleship. So you're just running people through water like, yep, Christian, yep, Christian, yep, Christian. And the quality of Christianity went from extremely deep, willing to be eaten by animals for Jesus, to 
we're just nominal Christians is kind of the trendy thing to do right now. I'm Instagramming that I'm at Bishop Taylor's church right now. You know, like that's what it became. And so Christianity was changing very, very dramatically. Um, Of course, it means that the gospel was heard more quickly, but the quality was definitely changing. So just to give you that idea, um, ever since Christendom, Constantine and Institutes, Christendom, like you get like a kingdom of Christians. He's the leader of it. And ever since then, the church continued to operate in this mindset of we are the center of society. Kings need to listen to us. Governments need to listen to us. The people need to adopt our values and our belief systems. And America has very much enjoyed the fruit of that. And that's why we feel angst and we get grumpy and pessimistic when we look out and see that our country's actually treating the church a lot like Rome did back in the origins. We're okay. We really are. It's going to be okay now that we're being pushed to the outside of our society. We didn't need to be in the center. Jesus did just fine when Christianity was on the outside. We will be okay. If and only if we can accept our new location. If we're going to continue to be the center of the world, then we are going to be very angry people, very frustrated people. We're going to use force and gimmicks and whatever means to get people to hear us and like us. And it's going to get ugly because the more opposition we get and the more we try to keep our foot in the center of society, we're going to see some battles. And you already see it with some churches and some movements. I won't mention their names, but you've, you've, every now and then you hear about it. We have to accept that America has told us we are outsiders. And I'm saying that because I'm not saying like, oh, it doesn't matter. America doesn't need us. I'm saying we need to learn to live like the early church did before Constantine. We need to reevaluate the way that we're communicating with people, the way we're worshiping God, the way we're going to now envision what the church looks like when government says you're no longer tax exempt. You can't have your buildings. We can't afford things because the churches are getting smaller all over the world. Like, how do you deal with this? We have to think differently. We are now on the outside looking into our our empire no longer in the middle of the empire telling presidents and helping them out and giving them advice so yes this election is going to be really bad oh am i just getting caught up (laughs) but we yes we can pray that things change and of course they can change but i'm really wondering if christianity was ever meant to be in the center of the empire anyways And maybe this is a good thing. Yes, oh no, our horrible presidential candidates. But you know what? The church can seize the moment. And we can become even more of a light. Unfortunately, it means that we might have to suffer a little bit or give up some of our comforts to do so. But I'm very optimistic about where the church is going in our nation. As long as it realizes we're no longer the center. Just a prime example of the way this works is there's one sort of ministry. And look, I'm not saying they're wrong. I'm just saying that sometime soon they're going to need to re-envision how they do things. It's the attractional church ministry. It's the idea that we establish a huge event with mainline speakers and an awesome epic worship team with state-of-the-art equipment to display everything. And we are trying to get as many people in our doors as possible. Now, it's reaching a lot of people now. 
But sooner or later, society is going to realize, and it already has, I think Christianity is slowly realizing it, that we are no longer cool. We're on the outside. And churches that are trying to get people in their doors are going to fail. Because people, at least my generation, they don't want to hear about it. And Christianity is going to learn how to now relocate to the outside and find ways to go to the center and bring people to us. Not sit in the center and say, hey, everybody, we're cool. We have awesome music and the Bible's the best thing ever and science is wrong. And so come and listen to us. That's not going to work anymore. We have to go to the culture and to the society and to the people. We have to move out of our temple. Oh, come worship with us. And we have to go and bring the gospel. Like Jesus said, just go and make disciples. It's not a coincidence that the temple was destroyed after Christianity got its big break in the world. We're no longer a central religion where people come to us. We're a scattered religion where we go to the people. And please understand, he's the word religion loosely. I know it's a relationship. Um, so with all of that said... Peter tells us that he's writing to those who are elect exiles of the dispersion in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, and those five regions, as you see on the screen. That's where he's writing. Large region, 300,000 miles of land. So he's writing to a general population uh, not a specific church, not a specific context, just to a general group of people saying, hey, you guys know because you're feeling the taunting and the slander and the mockery. You're, they're suspicious of you. They're calling you atheists and antisocial. You guys understand what I'm about to write. You're exiles. You're foreigners. You're temporary residents or you're outsiders. You guys get it. So this region he's telling, don't fear what's to come. Be ready, keep going, accept that you're outsiders, then you won't be surprised by the things that are going to come to you. Make sense? So that's the region he's writing to. Uh, Peter's writing 8064-ish. He's maybe writing through Sylvanus or Mark, meaning Peter's ideas of better penmanship, because Peter was Peter. And um, he's writing to help the church live as outsiders in the world's empire. Now, he starts with that. You are the elect exiles. Notice how he ends the letter in chapter 5, verse 13. She who is at Babylon, who is likewise chosen, sends you greetings, and so does Mark, my son. She who is at Babylon. Well, Babylon was pretty much dust and desert by then um it's widely believed that peter's using code for rome he's in rome at this time and uh rome was uh he didn't want with nero's persecuting he doesn't want anybody to tip off where peter is so babylon but the christian culture knows what babylon means it means the empire that oppressed the people of israel and scattered them around the world and made their life miserable that Babylon. Well, the Babylon in Peter's day is Rome. So the connection is very clear. And he's, they understand, yes, Rome is our Babylon. We're exiles and Rome is the empire ruling us. And we don't like them. <laughs> so uh, we see he begins and ends with this concept of your outsiders. We're like Israel in exile in a sense. So then we come to verse 3. And 
he launches into extremely good news. What we need to see him doing here is if he's writing to outsiders, then what he does in verses 3 to 12 is he confirms that we may be outsiders in the world's eyes, but in God's eyes, we are insiders. We belong to his kingdom and he will welcome us in and he already has. So it's so much easier to be an outsider of the world when you know you're an insider of God's kingdom. So with that in mind, let's, let's look at it again. Verse 3, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. We are born again to a living hope. What is this living hope? Hope, uh, many have said it's like a, a confident expectation of the future, of what's to come. I like to simply think of it as you're looking forward. That's hope. It's not the cheesy sport sign that people like, you know, your teams in the World Series, like, hope, <laughs> where you hope we can win. Um, that's like wishful thinking. Like we're just holding on at a strand. The church isn't holding on at a strand. It's holding on to the resurrection of Jesus Christ and says, our hope is a living hope. It's guaranteed. So we're just, we're looking forward to it. And what are we looking forward to? Our entrance as insiders to God's kingdom. Hope is so important to the Christian who lives on the outside. And he must hold on to this hope because this hope enables him to survive the outside knowing I belong somewhere. I just haven't gotten there yet. And we must squeeze it and hold it. So Peter right away says, don't worry, you are insiders somewhere. And notice that we even have something waiting for us. It says that we have in verse 4, an inheritance, imperishable, undefiled, unfading. Rome faded it perished. America will too one day. But we're insiders of something that will never perish. Uh, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for salvation, ready to be revealed in the last time. That is great insider news. Therefore, verse 6 says, in this you rejoice. So think of that. Look at that. Look forward to that and rejoice. Because, back to reality in verse 6, you are momentarily going through some hard stuff. You are outsiders, back to earth. Like, realize that. You're going to have fiery trials. And in Rome, that was physical. It hurt. In the rest of the empire, it was social. It was demeaning. It was slander. It was mockery. Um... But it's okay, guys. It's okay. Because the more that we are on the outside, the more our faith will be tested and we will get to see how genuine it is. As long as churches are trendy and very entertaining to go to, you don't have a lot of confidence that the people here really want to follow Jesus. But when you have to make a cost to get there and to be part of God's people, you know your faith matters. You know that it is solid. So there's worth to being put on the outside. We have genuine faith. And it's tested by fire. As you guys know, fire purifies gold. Um, but here's the cool thing is that our faith is being purified too. But gold perishes. Your faith will never perish. It's taking you to something eternal. And in the end, he reminds us that despite all this, we're still insiders. So this testing of our faith is found to result in this is the end of seven in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. So when he comes back, you endure 
praise and glory and honor are ours. He's saying, well done. I am so proud of you. And he takes us in with a celebration. So Paul, uh, excuse me, it's going to probably come out every now and then. So just always substitute Peter when I say that. <laughs> Peter is going to, um, he's, he's constantly reminding us of our hope. We are insiders in God's kingdom. Then verse 10 becomes very interesting. Um, concerning the salvation, the prophets, like, it's, it's talking about how they searched into it. Remember we read it? They're, they're trying to discern so heavily, like, when's the Christ going to come? What's he going to be like? Uh, what, what's his mystery with his death and the glories that follow? And then he just kind of brings us into this moment in verse 12 where he says, look, they were working hard, but it was for our sake. In other words, everything the Old Testament was writing and the prophets were foreseeing, they were looking and, and thinking and praying and writing on those things and putting down what God showed them. But we are the beneficiaries of what they saw. We're living in the fulfillment of what they talked about. So we get to be inside of God's great grand plan that even they, the prophets, would have been amazed to see happening. They were, in a sense, outsiders of it. They could kind of observe it and say, God, I don't, I'm writing this vision down, but I don't really get it. But we're living in it. That's an amazing inclusion that God has brought us into. And furthermore, he puts on at the end, these are things that angels long to look into. So you can see the picture complete now. The prophets are on the outside going, oh, we don't know exactly what's going to happen. It's going to be amazing. We're experiencing it. And then over here, you have the angels. They're just kind of like leaning over our shoulders like, what is this all about? Angels are outsiders. Even angels are outsiders to what God's doing in us. So Peter is showing us what a great thing God has done. He has brought us inside his plan, inside his kingdom. So don't fret when we become outsiders to society. That is great, encouraging message there. So now in verse 13, he goes into survival guide mode. <laughs> so, okay, we're outsiders. We're off the grid. You know, we're kind of like excluded. We're weird. We're uh, being even to some extent persecuted or mocked. And it's like, okay, survival guide for the wilderness. Here it is. So how do we, how do we make it through being outsiders? Well, like this. Number one, we're to set our hope fully on the grace of his return. That's verse 13. Therefore, preparing your minds for action and being sober-minded, set your hope. He told us about our hope. Looking forward to being insiders of God's kingdom. Um, set that hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. So let your hope keep looking forward. Keep looking forward. This is how you will survive life on the outside. Keep looking forward at your inside position with Jesus. Verse 14, we get to number two. As obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance. But as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. Since it is written, and here he quotes Leviticus, you shall be holy for I am holy. So first, we set our hope on God's future. Second, we are to be holy like God. Now, I don't want to get into this too much because next week we're going to talk about holiness. Um, but in short, holiness is the act of, of being set apart. It means you're not mixing in and becoming your culture, but you're set apart from it. Not in the sense that you're running away from it, but you've chosen to live for a different kingdom 
than your empire lives for. We have different kings. That's holiness. And the more that we choose to live for our future, our future inside position in God's kingdom, our hope, our looking forward, the more we choose to live that, we are holy. It's, it's the practice of participating uh, in that future right now in the present. Every holy act I make is a statement of resistance to our host empire, for us, America, the world, a statement of resistance against that and of faith in our future destination every act of holiness declares that so peter is encouraging them we must be holy because if you're not you're going to get assimilated into your culture and the gospel will vanish like a vapor this is how we survive so now he backs it up with um talking about how we were redeemed with the blood of jesus not gold or silver so much more precious. And in verse 20, Jesus was foreknown before the foundation of the world. Here's more insider hope for us. But was made manifest in the last times for the sake of you, verse 21, who through him are believers in God, who raised Jesus from the dead and gave him glory so that your faith and hope are in God. So Jesus came, he was made an outsider on the cross, rejected, despised, so that we could become insiders of his faith and salvation. Um, so that our faith and hope can bring us into him. Um, 22, this is the third tip to, for survival. So set your hope on God's future, be holy. Number three, verse 22. Having purified your souls by your obedience to the truth for a sincere brotherly love, love one another earnestly from a pure heart. There's number three, love one another earnestly from a pure heart. Why? Well, since 23, you have been born again, not of perishable seed or um, quite literally the idea of sperm. It's like reproductive seed. So not from a perishable uh, but imperishable. What kind of seed is that? <laughs> right? Then he explains it. Through the living and abiding word of God. We were born again through the indestructible, eternal word of God. Therefore, love one another. <laughs> we are not like the old way we were. We have been reborn. And listen, to survive as outsiders, we have to stop making the Bible about who's right and wrong. We have to stop making it about information only. And we have to let the word of God give us new birth. That is the only way we will survive on the outside. America has already rejected our theology as nonsense, as irrational, as science has trumped that. Why on earth do we want to keep using the Bible to be like, hey, we're right, we're right, believe us. It's obnoxious to the world. Rather, why don't we just take this instead of shoving it at them, actually put it in our hearts and say, make me born again to actually love my brother and sister. And that is the magnetism that will pull people out of the empire and join the outsider movement of Christianity. That's what the world needs, and that's how outsiders will survive. It's not us looking at each other and shooting at each other and being doc like doctrinal heretics and putting the stamps on everybody else, and we're the best church, so we want to steal your sheep and you know not let ours go to your church, and like that kind of mentality. That's what you do when you're in the center of the empire and you're vying for power. But we're on the outside, and we need to survive. We need to be transformed, and we need each other more than 
forever. We need unity. You live out in the wilderness, you don't do it on your own. You get a community and you guys learn to make fire and shelter and hunt. That's where we are moving in the next generation in this culture. And we must learn to use the word of God for its true power of personal and communal transformation. So he continues in verse 24. He's quoting Isaiah chapter 40 verses 6 and 8. All flesh is like grass and its glory like the flower of grass. The grass withers, the flower falls, but the word of the Lord remains forever. And this word is the good news that was preached to you. And that's what we need to let change us. First three verses of chapter two. Chapter two is put in the wrong spot, (laughs) in my opinion. Um, This is our fourth tip to survive. Number four. So we've got what? We've got looking, um, setting our hope on God's future. We've got being holy. We've got third, loving one another, using the word to actually transform us, loving one another. Uh, And then fourth, chapter two, verse one. So put away all malice and all deceit and hypocrisy and envy and all slander. Those are things that are anti-love. Put those away. If you're going to love one another, we can't do those things. Like newborn infants long for the pure spiritual milk. That, and the New King James reads the, long, uh, the spiritual milk of the word that by you, that uh, by it, you may grow up into salvation if indeed you have tasted that the Lord is good. So our fourth command, our fourth tip for survival, long for the pure spiritual milk of the word. That's our tip there. (sighs) Like newborn infants. He's not saying that you guys are infants. It's an illustration. The way an infant demands and needs and just instinctively craves milk. Right, Rachel? Johnny? I don't know where they are, but... (laughs) Um, yeah, Avalyn still nurses, so I mean, still, you know, like she's still instinct, like, give me milk, and she gets grumpy when she doesn't get it. So I get this verse. And that is saying is, let your desire for the word of God, not for divisive means of slandering and being envious and all that stuff, let your desire for God's word be what makes you grumpy when you don't get it. Wouldn't that be amazing? I get grumpy when I'm hungry and I've been shopping with family for too long and we haven't had sufficient meal and you know parking lots are the worst traffic in the world on top of the freeway um it's i can get very grumpy and when you see all your debit transactions and you're like okay this was a great day i paid for this day wow um you can get grumpy but what if we were more grumpy that i slept in and didn't read the bible this morning And I feel unprepared to love people because I didn't let the word transform me. And now I'm grumpy. (laughs) Fortunately, I think God has grace for a couple days or so. But what if that was us, you know? We just walk in like, if anything doesn't get done today, I want to make sure that this does get done. That I ingest the word of God. 
So that's how we'll survive those four tips. It's our survival guide. Really, the whole book is a survival guide, but there's four for us in this section tonight. Um, I want to, though, finish by showing us the importance of holding hope as outsiders. Because as the world turns against Christianity more and more, we will have great temptation to become more and more negative and pessimistic. We already feel it. You watch the news and you can't help it. So we must have a way of keeping our eyes forward on our hope and not lose what Peter said twice, our ability to rejoice. Verses 6 and 8, right? It said there in 1, 6 and 8. In this you rejoice. In the end of 8, rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory. He wants us to rejoice. Outsiders must be optimistic people. I'm not saying you have to be happy all the time and skipping and rainbows and clouds and unicorns, but we do need to have an optimistic outlook on the world and what the gospel can accomplish. And we need to be people who aren't energy suckers, but energy givers. You know, people that people want to be around. And here's something I learned this week. And I just heard it. I said, I have to say that here. (laughs) Neuroscience is amazing. I don't know if anybody has heard anything about the study of the brain and how it works. But one thing they've discovered, and a lot of things neuroscience is discovering, is actually incredibly faith-affirming. It's amazing what they're discovering. One of the things they talked about is this. That our brains are Velcro for bad experiences and Teflon for good experiences. Now, if you don't catch what the illustration is, is it means your brain is hardwired for negativity bias. That you can have the Velcro, like sticks to it, and it's hard to get off. One negative experience, you don't even have to dwell on it. It's just, it's sucking in your brain and you're thinking about it all day. You can get a hundred compliments on something you did, one critique, one negative comment, and what are you remembering? (laughs) They actually say that in relationships, to have a favorable impression, you need five good acts to every one bad act. That's what it takes for us to see people favorably. We have brains hardwired, I guess, towards, I would say, uh, some scientists say, obviously, we've evolved this way, but I would say the fall of man has caused us to be very negative in our outlook. Velcro, bad experiences. (laughs) And if we're not careful, it's happening to us. It's natural as humans. Our brains are made this way. However... Well, yeah, Teflon for good experiences. So that's, that's the other way that something nice happens or something good happens. And it's just, oh, yeah, that was nice. And it just slips right off your brain. So what neuroscientists are saying, they just use different language, but it's amazingly Christian. <laughs> what they're saying is that we actually have to stop and soak in good experiences intentionally. We have to stop and think about them for a few seconds to train the brain to stick it, to keep it, to not let it slide off. They use words like, well, this is very Christian, although some people are weirded out by it because the Buddhists, I guess. But they say meditation aids in this. 
And the psalmist said, I meditate on your word day and night. And I'm thinking, yes, like that's, that's it. That's the answer is we have to take the blessings and the, the hope and the grace and the salvation and everything Peter's been naming our, our living hope. We have to meditate on it, that it sticks in our minds. And we're not pessimists on the outside grumbling about how we used to be in charge. And now we're not, nobody believes anymore, but we're instead going on the outside, moving inside with our positive outlooks and attracting people because of who we are and that they want to be around us because we're joyful We take the time to let the joy stick in our minds and in our souls. We must take this hope that Peter talks about. And we must, if you don't like the word meditate, fine, pray about it. Uh, Dylan read Psalm 9 for us and it twice said, I will recount the great deeds of the Lord. I will recount all your wonderful deeds And then he says that I may count all your praises. The psalmist practiced this, the idea of, okay, what good happened today? We have to forcefully, intentionally ponder it so that it can stick. Instead, we're kind of like moving through life and the coffee was cold and that person didn't say hi to me in the traffic and he cut me off and not that person emailed me. I have a meeting with who and all these things in our day. Maybe if you have... Um, children at home it's totally different narrative but nonetheless a lot of negatives can happen and we just go through life and we never just stop pray meditate let scripture wash over us we have to let the things stick how often do we see a beautiful sunset rise whatever when you're on the 18 you're like oh that's nice (laughs) the radio's cutting out again (laughs) right right there what stuck what didn't but it's the moment of, oh, that's, wow. And yeah, okay, keep your eye on the road, please. But just keep, like, let, like, maybe a couple more glances and just appreciate that. That's what we need to do as outsiders. That's holding on to hope. We know we have hope, but are you holding it? Are you letting it stick in your mind? Are you letting Velcro become our good experiences? Um, lastly, I'm going to end with this quote here. I thought this was so brilliant. Um, so, this is a commentary on Psalm 1 where it says, I'll meditate on the scriptures day and night. Uh, it says, meditate is a bodily action. It's not just cognitive. This is the way the Jews meditated. It's a bodily action. It involves a murmuring and mumbling of words. Literally, that's what the word means. It's like, like you're murmuring God's word. Uh, taking a kind of physical pleasure in making the sounds of the words. What does that mean? Well, it means this. Isaiah used this word meditate for the sound that a lion makes over its prey. That's the physical kind of pleasure we're talking about. A lion over its catch and a person over the Torah or the scriptures act similarly. They purr and growl in pleasurable anticipation. Wow. So let's meditate, shall we? Let's receive, let's pray, let's ponder, let's thank God for the living hope we've been born again to, that we can be outsiders with the greatest light and witness possible. In Jesus' name. So the worship team's going to come up and lead us into communion. Um, please take this with gratitude. And that's what I love about Christianity is we weekly have built in that moment to pause and say, Thanks. Go before us, God, that we may follow in your steps. Go behind us to steer us when we stray. Go beside us as our strength and our joy for this journey. Amen.